Welcome to Screen Quest, a podcast where a fellowship of film lovers and armchair movie experts plays film roulette. I am one of your hosts, Chris Waterman from Jacksonville, Florida, joined as always by Will Rotondi from Greenville, South Carolina. Hey, hey, how's it going? Of course, we also have May Finch from Jacksonville as well. Hey, everyone. On today's episode, we will be discussing the film that we drew on last week's episode, which is Knives Out. But first, we wanted to wish a very special birthday to Mr. Quentin Tarantino, 59 years old today, born this day in 1963. We are recording this podcast on March 27th. Uh, So I thought it'd be kind of fun to just briefly uh, maybe talk about what your favorite Tarantino film is, if you have a favorite. So, uh, Will, I will go ahead and start with you. So it's kind of funny that you uh, that you're putting me first. And I only say that because and this may be uh, slightly uh, disheartening for the audience. I'm not really a big Tarantino fan. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I don't say that to say that I don't like him because I actually appreciate a lot of what he does. I like his style um, in the sense of like the uh, the homages that he pays to a lot of the films that he loves and that he is such a fan of cinema and sort of his methodology, like hearing about, you know, his work ethic when you're on the set, you know, put your cell phones away. This is, you know, we're here to work kind of a deal. So I appreciate him for doing what he loves to do and being able to do it in a way that he makes very efficient for what he does. Um, but there, that isn't to say that I haven't enjoyed watching his, uh, at least some of the films that he does. It's not my go-to kind of a thing, but I do enjoy, um, like Kill Bill was actually a movie that I enjoyed. And that was mostly because I could, I could emulate with the, uh, or I could empathize, I should say, with the protagonist. You know, I wanted to see how she was going to get through, you know, all the obstacles that were there, going from somebody who's bedridden to coming back and, you know, taking revenge and, so that was that to me was a lot more interesting than some of the other films where I kind of felt like it was more just dialogue based and not necessarily driven by a, a substantial amount of plot. And so that coupled with sort of the the martial arts aesthetic and some of the beautiful shots that are in that film, that to me, I was like, I can get behind that. I can definitely uh, watch that more than once and, and enjoy that. Um, again, not to say that uh, you know, the, I, I don't appreciate the other stuff that he's done, but that would be my my choice on that. It's a solid choice. That's a that's a fun um, like duo of films to watch uh, every now and again. It's one of the first quarantine movies I watched. So, um, like in a group nice. chat, like for for movie night was Kill Bill one and two. Um, so excellent. I love it. May, uh, do you have a favorite Tarantino film? I also have what may be a disappointing answer for our listeners, because it's the stereotypical answer, which is Pulp Fiction. Um, I feel like I do have good reasons, though. Um, I think it's really cool when a film is able to sort of transcend the medium in which it's originally like presented. And Pulp Fiction has become such a cultural icon, like just silhouettes of a couple of the different scenes are instantly recognizable whether you've seen the movie or not right um and um yeah no i just i think it's really cool like the the place it's gotten in our culture and i also like anything that kind of gets like a cult following for just like all the symbolism and it's sometimes unexplained <laughs> symbolism that's going on too 
Um, so yeah, no, I just, I think it's really interesting. I will say I, I like action. There is an amount of violence at which I get to where I'm just kind of like check out of a film. So I've not seen a ton of Tarantino films. I think Pulp Fiction was kind of my upper limit on that stuff. Very nice. Uh, I mean, I'll piggyback like Pulp Fiction is also my pick. I, uh, as you said, it's maybe the low hanging fruit, but, uh, that movie came out like in a time, um, so I, I, I didn't get into it right when it released because I would have been eight, um, you know, at the time, uh, I think, like 94, I believe is when it released. Um, but it, a few years later, so certainly like in like my, my freshman year of uh, high school, I believe is the first time I saw that. So 2000 and um, even like as an eight year old, they're like the soundtrack, for example, like Miserloo and all the the cool stuff that they like, you know, that like reached me as a young person. And then a lot of it was already very familiar to me. Um, like some of the the lines, um, certainly like the images, um, the poster, you know, with Uma with the cigarette kind of laying on the mm-hmm. bed um, had already kind of reached me. In. And when I saw that movie, like that, and there's a handful of others, but like that was one of those movies that like I forced all of my friends, like mm-hmm. we are going to watch this. Like I need, need somebody else to experience like how amazing and different this is from what I had been used to, to, you know, to seeing and just connected with it instantly sought out his other films. Um, you know, at the time there was just, uh, Jackie Brown and Reservoir Dogs. And then, um, my local video store, uh, clerk, um, recommended like, Hey, did you know that he also wrote the scripts for true romance? Um, which is an excellent movie as well. You can see Tarantino's influence right there. That's what financed I Pulp Fiction, I believe. And then natural born killers. Um, his, his stamp is, probably far less on that latter one they 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 fucked with the ending um and it really pissed him off uh as far as like how uh natural born killers like closes off but um it was cool to get like some more of of tarantino without like you know necessarily like watching another tarantino but i was like hungry for as much of that as i could get and uh have always made it a point to go see like the new Tarantino movie opening night i think some of his later works like if i'm being honest like have been kind of a mixed bag for me um, like I really, really love both, uh, Django and Inglorious Bastards, but they're like the kind of the, the end sequences of both of those, like don't really do it for me. Um, in fact, there's a line that like, I felt like was Tarantino almost winking at the audience in Django where Christoph Waltz like shrugs and goes, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Like after he like gunned somebody down and then it's just like, uh, incredible amount of violence that kicks off and you, like like you to your point may like you kind of just become numb to it after a certain point it's like man up until this point like this movie's been very interesting and sort of reserved and like it has had like violent moments but like i feel like this has been such a great thing same thing with inglorious bastards the end sequence of that as batshit and fun as it can be at times and you know i understand it's supposed to be sort of a fantasy of like wouldn't it be great if uh, somebody had killed hitler and like you know ended um <laughs> stuff here uh it just it's not nearly as interesting to me as like say like the scene where uh they have the cards on their heads in the bar and all that kicks off like um right. so i'm i'm with you there i i think that like uh both of you honestly like from, from understanding like so there, there's some aspects of his his filmmaking that um will always connect with me and other stuff where i'm kind of just like mm. so cool well uh thanks for for uh for sharing both of you and happy birthday again mr tarantino how old is he 59. 
So he'll be 60 um, next year. And uh, rumor has it, he's uh, spinning back up the idea of polishing off uh, the saga of Kill Bill that he's been kicking it around for a while. Um, You know, he wanted to tell the story of like the daughters. So uh, the rumors that I've heard, and these are rumors, like to be clear, (laughs) is they really want uh, Uma Thurman's daughter to, you know, to play BB, her real life daughter, um, who is uh, Maya Hawk, I think is her name. She's in Stranger Mm -hmm. Things. Um, She played the character at the ice cream shop that befriends uh, Steve. Oh, I love her. Yeah, she would be fabulous. Like, um, and, uh, you know, that they wanted to kind of tell a story of like this cycle of revenge that continues. So um, uh, who is it? Uh, Vivica Fox's daughter, like supposedly how he's envisioned this, like kills the bride and then the bride's daughter goes after her. And it's like, when does the cycle of like revenge and violence sort of end? Um, Mm -hmm. And I'd be up for that. Like if that was how he closed out his career, especially if he did another like two films or something like that. Um, Because you could pay homage to different genres, I feel like you wouldn't have to stick with the kung fu like samurai thing necessarily. Like I'd I'd be really up for that. So we'll see. Uh, But he's got one more in him, according to him. So nice. I remember back in the day when he was talking, or at least there was a rumor that he was thinking about doing a Star Trek film. Like that was the big thing in the news, and I thought that would have been such. I don't know. That would have been so exciting and different. I feel like for that franchise, because man, that was, I think that was back when Paramount Plus was just starting up and everybody was pushing all the new Star Trek series. And just the the idea of having like a vulgar rated R Star Trek to me seems so out of place. And And it's such a, it's a show that's like very much about diplomacy. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, man, Tarantino and that. mm." (laughs) Yeah. Star Trek is like a very hopeful thing. Like I just, it doesn't seem like a great fit. I I never loved that idea. Like personally, I I was like, Mm -hmm. it'd be amusing to see him write a episode like of a show. Cause he's done that. He's written like television episodes for like CSI and stuff. Like if if somebody could like rein him in a bit, but um, (laughs) I don't, I, I don't personally have any interest in seeing like, um, I'd read the script, put it that way. If you wanted to publish it, like I think like <laughs> that's about as far as I'd want to go, just to, like out of curiosity's sake. You hear that, Quentin Tarantino? You gotta send the script to Chris Waterman. <laughs> that's all right. I'll, I'll let you know if the if it's a go or not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh man. Um nice. well let's see what we get for our uh our side quest of the day. So I'm gonna give these a bit of a shuffle and we'll see what we get oops i just did the thing where i picked up just one card and spun it around that's not good this game's <laughs> rigged the house always wins that's the house right always wins all right and our side quest of the day is throw your popcorn so oh, yes. we've not drawn this card yet throw your popcorn is discuss a movie scene that made you throw your popcorn at the screen literally or figuratively i have uh, one you do yes. excellent please <laughs> by all means uh i would love to to hear your selection for this i i consider myself a very forgiving person but i have been holding on to this grudge against oh. this film <laughs> i'm so excited <laughs> i'm so excited since i was i think 14 13 15 somewhere somewhere My. in there adolescent that's a long grudge that's a long grudge uh, that's Bridge to Terabithia. Level. Bridge to Terabithia. Mm. I did not read the book. I this this thing was marketed as this fun fantasy like coming of age story. 
And that was my genre as a kid. I loved all the fantasy, sci-fi novels. And I went to the theater, like, super excited. And I came out crying because <laughs> I didn't know oh. <laughs> that was supposed to happen. Um, with I'm forgetting her name now even, but the, the young girl who drowns. Uh, spoiler alert, I guess. But, um, yeah, I didn't know what was supposed to happen. And I'm sure if I went back and watched it as an adult, like it would be a meaningful movie to me. But at that age, I just felt so betrayed and hurt because, first of all, I thought Terabithia was going to be real and it was going to be like this cool place with all these like interesting animals and magic and stuff. Um, So, yeah, I just I felt very betrayed. And I think if my I wasn't there with my parents who had paid for my movie ticket, I would have literally walked out of the theater. Damn. (laughs) Yeah, I've never read the book or seen the movie. Um, so can you give us like a brief synopsis? Yeah, of, like... yeah. So basically there's these two teens, a girl and a boy. Uh, I, again, I'm sorry, I've forgotten their names. But it's okay. um, And they uh, meet each other. I don't remember if there was like kind of like a little romance between them or if they're just close friends. But anyway, there is this uh, like place in the woods where they go to hang out that has this kind of creek running through it and a big uh, rope swing and they have basically like a kind of a pretend game where they'll like cross the rope swing and they'll enter Terabithia which is like this magical land Um, and you know because of the magic of cinema there is like some special effects and magic and stuff like that but it's also made clear it's just in their heads they're just playing pretend Um, anyway one day the river floods I think the two kids had had a fight and the girl runs off to go to Terabithia on her own, and she drowns in the river when she's trying to cross it. Oh, my. Yeah. That sounds fucking depressing. Is that how it ends? Or is that just, like, something that There's kicks There's some off? other stuff that happens, but I was checked out after that. I was like, oh, what? I, I thought this was a fun movie. Yeah. <laughs> I have a similar story. Um, not that I would, like, I would have picked this for a throw-year popcorn, but that that's what happened to me with Grave of the Fireflies. Like, the the you know, Studio Ghibli, like, film. Um, so I had convinced, you know, Marianne, I'm like, oh, we should work through some of these. Like, they're they're fun. You know, it's the Walt Disney, like, animation of, like, Japan. They're whimsical. They're really, really beautifully drawn. And um, that's one of the ones that was available on whatever streaming service. And uh, we watched it. And I don't, I don't want to ruin this because um, I feel like everyone should suffer through this, <laughs> this movie once. Um, but it starts off sad and then it gets sadder and then it gets even more sad. And then like, you know, um, it just like, it doesn't, it's relentless in how sad it is. And like, you know, it's, it's set during world war two. Um, but I just kept expecting the cat bus to pull up or some of the other like crazy (sighs) shit that happens in like a Ghibli movie and things are going to be okay. And like, it just never happens. It's completely grounded in reality. And uh, it was like a Sunday afternoon too. So like we had picked this to try to like alleviate some of those Monday, like it's coming blues. And Marianne was like, why did, why, why did you make me watch this? Like, why are we watching this on a Sunday? No less. Chris? And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't know. I'm sorry. So um, <laughs> that it can be quite a jarring experience if you're not prepared, like yeah. for something like that. Well, that sucks. I'm sorry. Have you seen I, the, this? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to add like, it, it, it was definitely a movie that was supposed to help kids cope with like losing your friend, which 
is important. Uh, we had a classmate when I was in like middle school or high school die suddenly. I didn't know her, but like for kids grappling with that, I see it, like this could be an important movie and like help them process. But the marketing was all wrong. Like that should have come across in <laughs> some of the advertising somehow. Yeah, I, I suppose like, you know, it, some of it would be a spoiler, but like, yeah, I, I agree. Like there's got to be something there. You can hint at there being like a tragedy, like show someone crying. Like, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, have you seen this film, Will? Um, have you seen or read the book? It's been a long time. I haven't read the book, but I did watch the movie, and I feel like that was back in high school. And I remember feeling similar. Like, I was really shocked that was how it was going to end. Um, kind of, I don't know if that was necessarily the case for stuff like, wasn't it My Girl was the Macaulay Culkin movie <laughs> yeah, that yeah. he dies at the end? Yeah. And so I don't know if it was sort of the same sort of surprise ending that nobody really saw coming unless you had read the book. But I do remember feeling like it was marketed as like a very upbeat film and thinking, oh, okay, I, I'm following. And then I just, yeah, I do remember being very jarred by how it ended and thinking I did not see that coming. Like I did not think they were going to kill off a character. And so, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I would have been shocked too because I, I thought it was like a, narnia type thing i don't know like when i saw mm-hmm. advertisements like yeah, no. dark like, I, dark narnia <laughs> <laughs> wow um uh, have so you ever had a quick quick self-correction she she didn't drown apparently like the the rope snapped and she hit her head on a rock just to, Ooh. To and then drowned i don't know if that's gonna happen i just wanted to make it sound terrible like yeah. more terrible but uh, so if there's any pedants listening to this <laughs> good grief yeah uh i know some people really like that book like back when i was in i think even like elementary school but i, I never read the book or saw the movie do you have any other like uh, or do you have an example of a movie like that um outside of that uh, either of you that like where you were shocked i mean grave of the fireflies is the one that definitely comes to mind for me where it's like this is not what i thought it was this cool if you know the other one that was like i was uh very disappointed with it similar was the where the wild things are because i love that book and that is a that is a sado movie. That is not at all. I should have known they they used Arcade Fire um, in the uh, the like the trailer. So it's like eh, I should have <laughs> probably known uh, the writing is on the wall, but um, it's not at all what I wanted from that adaptation of of one of my favorite like you know raucous kids books. But yeah, I'd have to agree on that. I I also hated the the film version of it. Um, I don't remember. I I don't think I read the books. I don't think I went into it with a super high expectation. But it was a similar thing of it, like, looking fun and then being very not fun. Yeah. I mean, that movie borders on morbid. Like, at times, like, I I feel like I just not a... I can't imagine taking your kid to that because I believe it was PG. I can't imagine taking your kid. This is one of my favorite books growing up you know junior like let's go see this movie where like everyone's in, in, having an existential crisis and like depressed and anxious like yeah yeah it'll prepare you for later in life kid <laughs> yeah i mean to be fair we were traumatized plenty from kids movies but I, I feel like they were more along the lines of what may was saying like to kind of help cope and like understanding like land before time time like the death of a parent and stuff like that Ooh, like yeah. geez man yeah tell me about it <laughs> I saw everyone's eyes light up. Holy like, shit! Yeah. Like, no, no. I think that's yeah. the first time I legit cried during a movie. Yeah, <laughs> probably for a Dude, lot that, of kids for sure. Absolutely, that was awful. 
<laughs> well, sorry, he rebounded really surprisingly fast, but I'm just, you know, that necessity, was baby. Like, he, you know, you gotta go find the Great Valley or whatever it was called. <laughs> like, it's it's oh that or extinction. So, right. <laughs> Tree star bust. Yeah. I hear you. Man, sorry. Bringing back memories on that one. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, uh, let's move on to our uh, main quest, shall we? Uh, so last week we drew uh, Deja Vu and the film was Knives Out. To kind of recap, Deja Vu is uh, a prompt where we look at a film that pays homage to a particular genre or maybe like a specific film or series of films. And we talk about if we think that was done well. Um, so we're going to be talking about Knives Out and hopefully for the, the last time for a while because uh, she's worked diligently. I'm going to turn this over to May to, to uh, guide us <laughs> through the discussion. Uh, we did talk behind the scenes. If we draw another May card, we may um, just, we're going to uh, throw it back in the deck and draw a different one. So May can have a break. <laughs> you but, will choose someone else. <laughs> we will. Yes, we will. We will. <laughs> um, so that's um, not like a, that's not a hint or anything, right? I mean, that. Chris said May. So we may (laughs) No, you will. (laughs) Oh, you guys. Um, Chris, we need to make your name into a verb somehow. That's right. (laughs) I mean, it's how three quarters, uh, seven eighths of the the word Christ. I don't know. I'm bad at math, but you know, so you're like Jesus Christ. (laughs) If we don't draw another card, I don't know. (laughs) So we'll workshop that. We'll workshop Uh, that. But Knives Out, one of my favorite films. I'm just announcing my bias right away. Um, but yeah, so Knives Out, a uh, murder mystery where the only true mystery is why Daniel Craig has that accent. Uh, yes. It was released in 2019, uh, written and directed by Ryan Johnson. It features a star-studded ensemble cast, including Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Anna de Armas. Christopher Plummer, Lucky Stanfield, and a lot of others I could I could list. Just really great cast. Um, Netflix has actually bought the rights to two sequels to this film, the first of which began filming in June of last year. And I have a little bit of trivia I'd like to start out with on my board. Uh, true or false? Uh, Knives Out is actually named after a Radiohead song of the same title. I'm going to go with True. So I know that this is a Radiohead song. Uh, it's one of my favorites from Amnesiac. Uh, whether or not the film was named after it. Um, I'm going to say false on this one. It seems like an odd choice, uh, but I've been fucking batting zero so far. So <laughs> on these. So I'm going to go uh, false. I am so sorry, Chris. Uh, Will is correct. Uh, so no it's, actually, it's actually true. Um Ryan Johnson has said that it's not like the content of the song is not related to the film whatsoever. That's why but he thought that the, the, the phrase knives out was a really good one. Mm. So he's been thinking about this movie since 2005, based on the research I did. Uh, so it's, it's been a long time in the making. Um, and there are a bunch of influences. There's a whole list of like uh, inspiration that he used for the movie that he's cited. Um, obviously, lots of murder mysteries like Murder on the Orient Express, um, Clue, a lot of others I didn't recognize, Luth. Um, so it's definitely a um, good pick for our homage category. Um, 
as, as Bill pointed out uh, in our in our group chat, uh, Harlan Thrombey's name is also actually taken from a choose your own adventure uh, who done it called Who Killed Harlow Thrombey uh, from like 1981. So very derivative, very much full of references from the genre, but also unique and quite a twist in a lot of ways. Um, I guess the first thing I want to talk about is just the two genres that Knives Out kind of straddles. Uh, so obviously the whodunit, but uh, there's going to be a lot of spoilers from here on out. So if you haven't seen the film, go watch it now, because they do tell you who did it uh, in about the first 30 minutes of the film. And from then on, it is very much a Hitchcockian suspense film. And how do you guys kind of feel about these two genres, like separate of Knives Out um, and like... What, what do you love or hate about murder mysteries and suspense thrillers? Uh, hmm. Well, I, I mean, I'm a huge Hitchcock junkie, so I'm a firm believer that like suspense is like one of the most potent tools in the toolbox of uh, the thriller genre uh, when done well. Um, I always think the like sort of, um, the revelation is way less exciting for me than like what you can do with like when the audience knows, you know, more information versus like less. Um, so I love, I love suspense films. Uh, the whodunit, like, I'll be honest. Uh, I, there's some films that I really like in this genre. I've never been a particularly like in love with, or like opposed to it. Um, but I think when you have a film like this, where like they, uh, handle the material well, um, it can be incredibly fun. Um, so that's just, that's my quick little 30 second take on it. How about, how about you, Will? Um, I would say that I'm after watching the film and sort of going through some of the, uh, the interviews that Ryan Johnson had talking about what he was thinking when he was making it, one of the points that he, he made that stood out to me was the idea and sort of tying into the whole Hitchcockian aspect of it is that he liked, he, Oh, excuse me. <laughs> he <laughs> likes the films like the the whodunits where he found it more interesting where the audience already knew who had actually committed the crime and it was more understanding or watching to see how the detective was going to figure out who did it. And they're, you know, like having already seen the fact. And I think to some extent, and I could be wrong, but I feel like that was very much like what Columbo, like the old TV show mm -hmm. Columbo was about. Yeah, where you actually saw the crime in like the first what two to five minutes before the credits and then it's like okay so how's he going to figure this one out and so you know we're we're shown the same sort of setup in this film and that it is very much like the the drive to not only to see if and when because like we all know murder mysteries typically they find out who did it at the end I mean that's usually that's there is no sort of or at least there's typically not a gray area uh, but we can also talk about how that may not be the case in this one, too. But usually they figure out who the, the person is who did it and they go to, you know, they're presumably going to get justice for the, you know, the, the wrongs they've done. Um, whereas in this, you, you know, from the beginning, you are attached to the character who is presumed to have committed the crime and you're right. just watching to see, you know, how how's this going to turn out? Because you you empathize with that person and you you don't want that because they're they seem like a very great person everything they do is like done with well with good intentions and so it's like are they going to choose to try and cover up what they think they did 
is the detective going to find out what they did? And then it just sort of builds over the course of the film to the point where it's like, there's even a car chase scene at one point. You're like, okay, so how are they going to justify this? Get out of this, continue the plot forward. And so it's sort of like, as you're digging deeper, or as as the character's digging deeper into trying to figure out like, what they're going to do to get around all of the events that are taking place. I just, that to me was what I, I really, the first time I watched it, I got, you know, interested in, and that was what drew me to, you know, to want to see how it turned out. Cause I felt, you know, I started to get anxious watching it. Like, I don't want this character to not be okay. I really like her. And so I'm like, you know, that was, that to me, it got me. So it did what it was set out to do. I also love that. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna ask Will, is this a rewatch for you or is this the first time that you've watched it? So this is take two for me, um, which having seen it the first time around and remembering most of it, watching it a second time. And I think you even made a comment about this in the chat beforehand was like, that was great because then you could see all the little details. Mm -hmm. Like there were certain things that I I could remember at the end of it that sort of tied stuff together, but there's just small little details peppered throughout the entire thing. So that to some extent, if you are more of the person that likes the whodunit for the sense of putting the clues together versus actually knowing who did it, there's a little bit of both that's sort of, you know, spread throughout. You have the real, the close-up shots that you can tell, you know, the director wants you to intentionally see that and understand that that is important to note. Um, but then there's just little things here and there, phrases that characters say, foreshadowing that's thrown in, um, just imagery that you may or may not pick up on just because it's so quick. And there's so much to look at in a lot of these scenes when you're in the Thromby house that it's just if you if you don't look, it's there and gone. And so to go back and rewatch it and to kind of have some of the the information provided from these these interviews and from the director and from other people that have <laughs> spent quite a bit of time on Reddit also discussing this, it was nice to go back and just kind of see some of this in play as well. So definitely. Yeah. What were you saying, Chris? Um, I, I was going to say it's also I love like that the, the setup is almost like sort of a false start like you get sort of like you establish everybody's motives and then like it then like none of it matters like after they spend a quite a bit of time like establishing everyone's like that those interview sequences with each of the children um, and like you're along for that ride where you're like oh we're getting more information than the detectives are in these scenes because they're remembering like how it actually went down and then saying something completely different. So I love that early um, kind of pulling out of the rug underneath the, the feet of the audience where you start sort of postulating who might be the, the killer. And then it doesn't, it quickly doesn't matter at all. Um, so I just, I, I love like, that was one of the things that like on this watch, like I took copious notes of like, wow, they spend quite a bit of time, establishing motives that (laughs) quickly don't matter that's a pretty brilliant move in my opinion Mm -hmm. yeah no the shift is so abrupt because um i i love whodunits and like the 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 cozy murder mystery like murder she wrote stuff like that i I was raised on that kind of stuff um but i i love how quickly it shifts i was part of the reason i was looking through what ryan like johnson cited as his inspiration was i thought rope the Hitchcock film must be in there because like the, the, the latter half of this film feels very much rope. Yes. Just trying mm. to, <laughs> you, you know, the whole murder, you know, everything, but uh, there's a lot more going on here. Um, yep. I agree with Mr. Hitchcock. It's I to me, like a, a movie is typically like um, 
you know uh exponentially more interesting like when the audience has more information and not less like i think it i think films where they're they're just trying to obscure everything and it, it you know you're trying to uncover the mystery um sometimes are, are one dimensional compared to like a movie where they give you a lot of information or all of the information and then like watch how things kind of play out so. um i think i was following uh, in part to contrast it against other like suspense and murder mystery movies and shows, but in part just because I haven't seen something like this made in the 21st century was the use of modern technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the way they implemented it was pretty interesting. And I also read an interview with Ryan Johnson about um, kind of like how a lot of horror movies will rely on there being no cell signal and things like that. They just kind of get around that complication but I feel like Knives Out really leans into the technology and also has an interesting uh, contrast between the technology of the old mansion, which is like VHS tapes that are very easily <laughs> corrupted. Uh, and then the technology of everyone else, which is like, you know, using phone recorders to get confessions and li- live streaming their family feuds and stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> Even like the references to like sort of like modern like politics, I, I thought like you oh, know, yeah. um, like calling them like a little alt right troll, and then <laughs> how's that SJW degree? Like they like they they play around a lot with like I don't know like um the interplay of of, of politics too in a way that I think that's very interesting. I'm sure we'll get to that um, when we talk about Marta a little bit, but um yeah, <laughs> but yes. Uh, I just when you said technology, I was thinking about the the little uh, alt right trolls he's called um, in the bathroom <laughs> with his his phone, like overhearing the conversations, presumably being a troll on on Twitter. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no, like the the politics of the film is very interesting, especially because um, it does seem to really try to do its best to take shots at, at you know both sides of the aisle, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a question that I wanted to ask you both, kind of based off of that, is a lot of murder mysteries have revolved around the upper class and upper class issues and upper class victims. Um, and oftentimes the, the killer is portrayed as someone who is kind of an other or a deviant. Um, and the it, it very much feels like kind of an inversion of the usual class dynamics of a murder mystery in the film. Um, I was just wondering how you guys kind of felt about the class and politics of the film. I mean, I, they, they're ever present. Like, so I, you know, the article that, um, you had sent in, in our chat that I had actually read after, uh, um, that's funny that we both like stumbled across the same thing. Cause it's just a fabulous, uh, read to, it gets into like a lot of that. The fact that like everybody in the family considers themselves to be like, you know, fairly like liberal and, and like, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like PC, you know, and yet they, they can't actually recall where Marta's from. <laughs> And really, you get the sense that they don't Brazil? give a shit. Is it Paraguay? No. <laughs> they don't give a shit, really, like, is what yeah. it boils down to. Um, and I don't know. I think Ryan Johnson has something to say by, you know, um, really, like, the, the culpable party is not another. It's somebody who's, like, part of the family, right? Um, and even though none of the other family members are guilty like per se like as far as like the murder goes um you're not endeared you're repulsed completely at least i was like by every single person in that family just about um you know um i think meg is maybe the only one that like you know i think like i 
not really gave a pass, but like, I'm like, okay, like she was sort of forced into this. Like she seems genuinely uh, to feel guilty about what she's done. But um, yeah, I, I think like, he's definitely, you know, saying that uh, it, th- like he's playing with those tropes, I guess. Like it's not the other, it's, it's somebody that's very close within the family. That is the one that's culpable. Yeah, for uh, listeners who would like to read the same essay that Chris and I read, uh, it's the electric literature essay titled How Knives Out Turns the Whodunit on Its Head by Manuel uh, Betancourt. And I'll read a small excerpt because it does kind of just like perfectly describe this in better words than I could. And I want to give this guy credit because it's a great article. But um, the picture-perfect facade of the family starts crumbling down once they learn not only more about Harlan's death, but about his will, which rewards Marta for her friendship and cuts his leeching family members off from Harlan's fortune. That this causes young Marta to be persecuted, threatened, cajoled, and intimidated is the point of the film. The niceties they all afforded her when she cared for Harlan fall apart the moment she may well become their equal. The paranoia of the whodunit is transformed. It's not the fear of who might be the next to die, but the more inchoate fears seemingly nice liberal people still harbor about those who are unlike them. So along those lines, I have a quick question for you all. And I promise, like, um, Will, I want to hear what you have to say about the the class um, sort of uh, issues, like, um, portrayed in the film and, and how that all, like, uh, comes together at the end. But do you think that Har- uh, the Harlan uh, left the money to Marta because he knew that she would potentially take care of the family members without letting them squander? Like, because she, there's a comment at the end. I, I, I think she asked um you know uh D- daniel craig's character who i'm blanking on is it leblanc mm-hmm. says last name benoit blanc benoit blanc yes thank you uh you know if she should help uh the families and he's like well i have my own opinion but like i have a feeling you're gonna do like you know what what you feel is right or you know what, what your heart tells you or something like that do you think that harlan like knew that like maybe like she like is that kind of person that She's not going, like, she may potentially, like, keep them, like, I don't know, uh, uh, with, I don't know, within, like, living means, maybe, but not, like, th- didn't want them to have access. In other words, like, they need a caretaker, sort of, like he was. What, what's, what was your read on that? Because I went back and forth after watching it this last time. I will say the thing that still feels kind of unsettled to me about the film, even after watching it twice is it is very odd that Harlan made this decision to cut out every family member on his 85th birthday without like knowing he was like about to die. <laughs> um, it just seems like an interesting choice. It's very theatrical, very dramatic. And that Same. does kind of make me feel like as, as selfless as Harlan is throughout the film, um, that decision was much more of a fuck you to his family than mm. a like you know overwhelmingly gracious gesture to Marta because it does bring a lot of scrutiny to her family especially to her mom that she didn't need (laughs) yeah so I'd agree yeah do you think that like he knew that she would like how like continue to sort of like give an allowance to the because they kind of imply that right that she's grappling with that like do I kick these people out to the street basically like you know, um, or like, can I, do I use some of the, you know, this wealth to like continue to support them, like pay for Meg's college, for example? I honestly don't know, but there's a very interesting refrain throughout the film of the idea of being cut off from Harlan's fortune as 
the best thing that ever happened to you or the best thing that could happen to you. Like that is oh, yeah. used by one character against another constantly throughout the film. Never um, about themselves. <laughs> no, never, never about themselves. Um, and I, I, I think Harlan would genuinely rather see his family just not get a single cent of the money. And I think instead of giving the money in a will by giving all the money to Martha, He's in a, in a sense trusting her to make that choice, but I think he also believes that once she really gets to see like the true face of all of his family members, she's probably not going to want to give them anything. <laughs> that final shot is amazing. Like, it, <laughs> mm-hmm. it always makes me smile when she's got the the mug that's like my house, my rules, and she's just sipping coffee up on the balcony. It's also yeah. just like a very literal inversion of the upstairs downstairs mm-hmm. trope, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Because now she's up on the balcony and they're all downstairs outside. <laughs> yeah, outside. Yeah, exactly. They're not even mm-hmm. like in, in the home. You know, you could have easily done that like on a banister or something. But um, yeah, it's lovely. So, Will, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to like uh, derail us. Um, what, did, what, did you, what did you think about the, uh, you know, like, I don't know, interplay of like class and, and status like in the, in the movie? I did want to hear that. Oh, you're good. And truthfully, I don't think there's much else that I could add that wasn't really touched on primarily uh, from you guys already uh, i actually agree with a lot of what you said on that i think when it comes to what Marta's going to do with the money now that she you know that everything's sort of sort of been resolved i mean man i uh i'd say keep it <laughs> i'd say let them figure their own mess out because they got a lot of baggage so i think the rest of the family I mean, that's, that is the hard question though because she is so good because every time she's given the option of I could cut and run and I could leave this person. She chooses the person to help him out. Like when the, uh, was it the, the housekeeper ends up getting drugged and it's the question of I could run or I could stay and try to help the housekeeper, you know, and she stays and helps her. Even when she might get, you know, that same concern about getting caught supposedly for committing this crime, you know, she still sticks her neck out for other people. Um, and I mean, she even mentions the comment too, to, uh, and I apologize that her name's escaping me. The, um, the other granddaughter who had college funds delivered, was that Meg? Meg, I think. Yeah. Meg. Okay. Yeah. I think that, you know, Marta, despite all the stuff that the family is saying to Marta, she still tells Meg, you know, like, I'll, you know, I'll help you. I'll make sure that nothing bad happens. You know, you'll be okay. So, uh, I could see it going either way. Whether or not it's the right choice, again, it's it's up to her to, to make that and for her to, you know, as as a good character, you know, as somebody who is well-meaning, I think that, that I could see it happening that way. That she would still at least try to help them out a little bit without being too much of a caretaker to the extent that they just leech onto her for yes. money uh, into the, you know, into infinity, uh, you know, with, until they all pass away and become old curmudgeon you know, privileged white people too, but as they have continued to be their entire lives and otherwise, you know, b- despite the images that they all want to portray of how together they have it or how successful and they're all self-made. They all yeah. yeah. <laughs> like they all, they all did this in parentheses, you know, asterisk in the fine print, thanks to, uh, you know, granddad's extensive wealth. So, yep. I, I think, say, that it, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I thought you were done, but no, I ramble. So it's okay. What's up? <laughs> No, I, I was just going to say with, with Meg, I, I actually have a very less like charitable view of Meg in part because I realized rewatching 
that uh like the timing of when she is calling Martha and Martha reassures her that like you know I'll I'll cover your college and when Meg tells the entire family that Martha's like mom is undocumented she does that after Martha reassures her about the money mm. um, that's true um, yeah. No. yeah and i'm not saying that you know it, it was justified for her to do it in any case but it's especially shitty that you know she's not even worried about her own personal like finance at that point yeah. um but it really just seems like she is trying to get back at martha in some way um See, I, was kinda re- I always kind of read it as like she maybe was pressured a bit by the family too like there, there's a lot of strong personalities and she again i i don't let her off the hook completely like um but she's younger right she's college age right. um you know who knows what kind of like deals uh those horrible people were maybe trying to cut with her like on it like i think it's you know not an honest mistake but it's a mistake that like i think is borderline forgivable like she does genuinely seem sorry like when marta comes back to the house and like she's you know hugging her and she's like i'm so you know like i I, it doesn't seem like something she's just saying to say at that point um so i don't know it's i could see it either way honestly it is a (laughs) shitty thing to do and that does uh kind of recontextualize it for me a little bit like the timing i hadn't picked up on that um but megapologists aside uh does it (laughs) uh does it does it feel like there's kind of a moral here because um i know a lot of like murder mysteries like they're the the they're called cozies because they are kind of cozy and comforting in the sense of like there's a tragedy and a horrible thing that happened but you know by the end of the story all the loose ends are tied up the killer are perpetrators behind bars and you know life can go on idyllically and I was wondering if you guys kind of got that vibe from the film or if it was more discomforting or if you got an entirely different feeling. I feel like in the moment at the very end where she's standing on the second floor, it's very vindicating. And I feel like you can get that moment of, you know what, you can, you can do all the right things and still be okay. Most more or less do the right things. We'll, we'll admit there are, there is some attempted cover up of evidence uh, throughout the film, but <laughs> some, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, videotapes and you know some you light know, arson tracks in the mud. And, you know. She did but, not do the arson. To I know, be fair, I although know. she's I guess an accomplice to the arson. It's true. Yeah, <laughs> the driver, the baby driver. The, yeah, so. yeah, baby. That's it. But it's the yeah, man. It's I don't know. I feel like in the moment, it's like a yeah, I can be a decent person and I can still be better than, you know, like everything's going to be okay. And this is really what we should aspire to be. But at the same point, it's sort of a reflection of the fact that, you know, if you have money, you're worried about your money and it doesn't matter when push comes to shove, you're going to try and figure out how you're going to keep your money. And I think that that is very much a, an unfortunate, just reality of our culture. And I, and not necessarily because it's somebody who's rich it could be somebody who just really needs the money and so it's the you know if we were all put in the same position would we do what marta does you know or would we cut and run and i think it's i think that really is the question of how you come out feeling at the end of the film is what would you do and how do you feel about that choice and so for me watching it i thought you know there's certain films where you watch the main character and you think they're just they're genu- genuinely a nice person. They make mistakes, but they're genuinely a nice person. And I'm, it's like, 
if you were put in the same situation, would you be the nice person or would you, how would you weigh your options with that? And how would you internalize based on what you know, not necessarily as the audience and what the audience can see, but if you were a character, not necessarily an alt-right troll, you know, tweeting about stuff in a bathroom somewhere, but you know, <laughs> you know but stuff like that. And uh, that to me watching at the very end was sort of the, wow, this is really good. Good for her. And then it's the, so what comes after that day? You know, yeah. and what do they try to do to get their money back? Because is that really going to be the end of it, or is there going to be the coda after that? And so, that's all I got. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. a really interesting question. I have no idea what I would do in 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 Marta's place because I I feel like I would not be nearly as like kind to the thrombies as she is while taking like quite a good deal of like verbal abuse and manipulation. Um, yeah, I don't think I could be as kind as her. Um, I'd like to think I would still try to save Fran's life, but um, I think I'd have some choice words for the rest of the family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, or as, there's a... as Chris Evans said, eat shit, eat shit, eat shit. <laughs> yeah. And while it's like, I will not eat one iota of shit. <laughs> yeah, we had the captions on. Um... And uh, I, I had not heard that line prior to this watch. I want you on out of shit. It, it, I uh, what a, a good guffaw. Um, <laughs> that's like... The comedy is good in this. I think I I was laughing out loud at just like Martha like stumbling through getting rid of evidence in like a way that's very haphazard and bad, but it somehow works. The disguise like kills me every time where she comes down the stairs. <laughs> like, like, oh, it's just the, the implausibility. So that's really um, great. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, like, I, I don't know. I think there's a, so I think you're meant to think that it's comforting at the end of like, so again, that the, the shot that we keep coming back to, you know, with the, like she's kind of swaddled and has a cup of coffee. Uh, but I think, I don't know. There's, a, there's an ugliness that's been laid that i think is fundamentally going to change marta like the rest of her life i think she gets a glimpse of i don't know like uh just the the ugly side of human nature and all these people that have been you know um sort of uh falsely kind towards her and warm towards her seeing what they'll do when uh you know the the stakes are, are higher and like will said when when their fortunes um at risk uh and in sort of that ugly behavior i don't think that's the type of thing that you come back from you know i would imagine that she'd be a uh, you know in my mind like uh the epilogue uh 20 years later you know like <laughs> she's probably a far more cynical person uh mistrustful and you know probably quite hardened um not only by their behavior but I, you know uh i'd imagine there'd probably be some trauma too to the fact that like yeah she like uh, what what happens with uh, Thromby, you know, and like, and that, like, she, she doesn't really have time to process it because she's in sort of like survival mode, but I don't, I just don't imagine you would recover from something like this um, fully. I think there would be some, some permanent emotional scarring there. So uh, I, I do not see the ending as, as happy as it, as it appears on, on screen at all. Yeah, it's, it is easy to see her as kind of innocent and naive in terms of like her like trust in other people and humanity. But on the other hand, like it is, it is made clear that um, Harlan was telling her about all the stuff that was going on inside the family. Like she was privy to yeah. the cheating and stealing and, and all those kinds of things. True. 
That's a good point. So I, I, I wonder if like she's not as naive as she seems, but she's just very like keeping things kind of close to the chest because that's what feels safe. Um, I do think that just like the trauma of seeing like what seemed to be like Harlan was kind of her best friend too, uh, like kill himself in front of her, like is definitely going to leave a mark. And I do feel like she's going to be a lot less trusting as, as time goes on. Um, just from having to actually deal with these people one-on-one rather than just hearing stories about them from Harlan. So that begs the question then, because you could, I think you could speculate, make a good case that her reaction to that she's in the will is more of a, a performance. Like, do you think she knew that like he had changed the will? She's privy to all this other stuff. I think it's an interesting take to like, assume that maybe she knew. Uh, and maybe that's why she's in survival mode, trying to get rid of evidence and kind of protect herself, right? Like, that's an interesting read on the movie, if you if you make that assumption that she knew that the will had been changed. I hadn't considered that. I think Harlan likes to play games too much. I don't think he would have told her that. Yeah. Could, could I be. think he would have done it for for the effect, if nothing else. Yeah. Flair for the dramatic. Yeah. He likes to play games, but Martha consistently beats him at games. And I feel like mm-hmm. if she was told that he was taking everyone else out of the will, mm-hmm. she, she'd be asking, well, then who, who gets your stuff instead? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think she'd know, but I think she probably had a good sense that it was probably coming to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just intuitively. Um Speaking of games, there's a lot going on with like references <laughs> to playing a game, uh, both like from and to Harlan and Martha and Ransom. And I was wondering if you guys like saw any like common threads with that or if it just seemed to be kind of a throwaway refrain to you guys. I definitely saw stuff going on there with Go. I thought it was really cool. If yeah. you want, I can I can ramble on about that for a couple minutes. Oh, please do. <laughs> I I don't understand the game at all. So <laughs> well, all right. So for everybody who's listening right now, this is your 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 quick tutorial on how to play Go. Unless I took my notes incorrectly, in which case I apologize. Uh, but Go is basically a two-person strategy game where you've got a grid pattern set up, and you've got these little stones, these little round stones that you play with that are either white or black, depending on which side you're on. So it's kind of like chess, and you play by putting pieces that are either the white or black pieces down on the board at the intersections of where these little grid patterns are. So you've got like a 19 by 19 grid set up and then every little spot in there, you'll put a a stone and you can do it wherever you really want to. But the goal is that you don't want them to be surrounded and they can be surrounded in the sense of like, you might have a cluster of a few stones together. And then if that is all surrounded by the opposite color, then you lose those. They can be taken from you. And by the end of the game, once all the stones have been played, you figure out who gets the most points by how many they have on the board, plus how many they have captured from the other player. And so Mm. I think it's interesting, you know, we because this is sort of like before all the events are set in motion for Harlan's demise, this is what's getting played. And yeah, and it's between him and Marta and he's playing with white tiles and she's I think he's playing with white tiles and she's playing with black. Uh, Black gets to go first. And white, I think, does, I think white goes second in this game. But I think they also get like a sort of like a, not a handicap point, but they get points because they've gone second. Hmm. And so it's, and I could have that wrong. So don't quote me on that, but I feel like I read that somewhere. And 
as they're playing the game, it's interesting because Harlan makes the comment where she's always beating him and she says, you know, I'm not playing to win. I just like it for the beautiful patterns that I see on the board. And then there's another point, sort of point number two that I thought was interesting later was when the grandson Ransom is talking to Marta when they're at a restaurant and she's sort of relaying all the stuff that's gone on to the plot up till now because she's trusting in him to help her out. He makes some comment about how the last conversation that he and Harlan had, it was a big argument. And Harlan made a comment about how Marta always beat <laughs> beat him more than Ransom did. And he's like, I don't know. I never understood why he would say that. And then there's a kind of fast tracking back to a little bit earlier in the film. Point number three was that Linda makes this offhand comment about how Harlan always likes, likes to play games. And, you know, you only have you have to play by his games if you want to be accepted by him and so I thought it was interesting that you know for Marta she doesn't really play by his rules you know she's not doing the game like he's playing the game she's just playing the game because she's she likes what she's you know she likes the pattern she likes her way of doing it he has something completely else in mind and so it's sort of interesting that the rest of the family is sort of the same way they have like an end goal they're all about the money at least you know, everybody, I'm assuming Harlan as well, but that's arguable. He is the one who was the self-made, presumably, with everything. But everybody else is there because they're after his fortune, essentially, or they're staking at their cut of it. And so I thought it was interesting that, you know, for somebody who um, isn't playing that game, she's doing something else, she's doing her own, she's got her own game in mind, that that's sort of, that's the person who comes out on top in the end not only beating him, but also as the storyline unfolds. And I think the only other, I'm trying to feel, I feel like there's probably something else going on there with Benoit Blanc, not just necessarily in the last name choice, because Blanc means white, but I, I don't know. That was, that was an aside thought and I'm, hmm. I'm just going to leave that there. So that's all, that's all that really stood out to me for right now with Go. Yeah. Like, thank you for explaining it. Um, that is interesting that, Harlan would have had just a natural advantage of the point, like by going second, but also had the courtesy to let Martha go first. It does seem kind of emblematic of their relationship. Definitely. Chris, did you have any thoughts on that? Um, no, not really. Like as far as like go, like I know there's like some references to other, like, you know, and that's part of I, I wrote down a whole list of like who done it um and murder mystery like references because there's shitloads, but like clue oh, yeah. is mentioned, like the fact yes. that the house is like a, a you know, it's like a clue board. Um, you know, uh trying to think what other like game references other than like just saying, you know, that Harlan likes games. Um yeah, no, I don't have much to add on that. Um, I think Will uh, captured it beautifully and uh, way more eloquently. Um, like, I, I do appreciate the explanation on Go as well. I feel like I've played that then, like, um, and just didn't know it was called Go um, on the computer. I mean, like, you know, but uh, yeah, pretty cool. I think that I think connects with games, but it's slightly different is this idea of like, seeing through an illusion or a story to the truth mm. and this happens like literally and figuratively like with all the different testimonies that are conflicting and then untrue um but there are a number number of things that don't look as they actually are so we have like the prop knives that's a huge kind of you know plot device as well as they're just everywhere in the whole house um but we also have like the swapped meds and the fact that um 
had Marta not noticed her quote unquote mistake, Harlan would have been fine because she was able to see the truth through the, you know, illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also at the very end uh, when uh, Linda, I believe, sees the empty letter that her husband had thought was, you know, a fake that uh, Harlan hadn't actually had any evidence of the affair or a letter. Well, she sees it immediately knows, no, this is just a heat sensitive ink and is able to read it instantly. Um, and I think to an extent, it's, it's a reflection of like how close they were to Harlan on whether or not they can actually see through those kinds of illusions and be able to play his game. Maybe not the same way as Will pointed out, but, you know, at least kind of see the truth for what it is. Uh, because I do feel like everyone is kind of faking it in those interviews, but I feel like Linda was genuinely the closest to Harlan of any of his kids um, and kind of understood the the game aspect of him the most and is least thrown off by that tendency of his. Yeah, interesting. So what what do you make then of like, so Ransom like appears at certain times to not want to play the game, right? Like he's very nonchalant. He refuses to kind of be interviewed or scrutinized. Doesn't go to the funeral, which we, we later find out, um, you know, is, is uh, because he's trying to cover up uh, uh, the crime. Um, but he has this sort of like devil may care, like attitude where he doesn't seem interested in like playing the game. I mean, he's kind of an anomaly in that, in that regard. So um, I don't know. What'd you guys make of that? Is it he just wants the easy way out kind of thing? Like, I'll just kill you. You don't have to like, I don't have to convince you of shit. Like, I'll just murder you. Like, uh, like what's, what's that all about? Do you think? He has a kind of like turn in his character, right? Like he describes it to Martha early on as Harlan announcing he's cutting him off and he drives off. And he suddenly has this clarity. And Blanc recontextualizes that later by saying, yeah, he had clarity that he has to kind of take his life into his own hands. Mm-hmm. And I think at that moment, he decides, I'm not playing Harlan's game, I'm playing my own games. Mm-hmm. And he wants to kind of become the next Harlan in a way. Um, and that that backfires because he's not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's... he's the only one that, that finds out about the will, right? Like, he's the only one that knows that information, too, like, which is... Uh, I thought all of them were told by Harlan that they were losing uh, some stake of the of the money. Oh, sorry. So to clarify, I mean, like, because uh, mm-hmm. Marta, right? Like, he's the one that knows that. Like, uh, it's Marta's that's the Martha. one. Yeah, yeah. That's true. <laughs> I do think it's interesting, though, that like a lot of the guys that are playing different games in this film are like setting themselves up to lose and not really know it like i mean besides ransom and sort of the the stuff that he puts in play that just backfires later um there's also the and i i'm really failing on names i apologize i need like a family tree so linda's husband what's his name again i think richard rich richard okay um don so i always thought yeah i know right yeah nash bridges nash bridges old nash bridges uh old alt-right nash bridges is now (laughs) dealing with like when he takes the baseball and he throws it outside 
because he feels like he's you know dodged a bullet from having his wife find out about his affair and then through like a series of just little seemingly unconnected little plot points that sort of push the narrative along and then at the same time circle back to events so that his wife finds out finds the letter that he thought was oh it's there's nothing written on it and she then turns out to find it uh through this you know this series with that baseball yeah uh then you know he's he's undone by that you know so it's like all these little these games that these guys are playing in this family that just don't they don't pan out i think there was even like a deleted scene where you find out more about walt you know and using going into debt basically and then trying to get his way out of debt by using nefarious means of income and then he gets you know like three in the morning gets shot in the leg by some dude who's coming out to collect and so that explains why he's going walking around limping with a cane and i thought yeah and so i'm just like this is so weird to me that all these you know it's like for as as well off as all these guys are it's like nope there's still another game there's a different game i want to play and i think i'm really good at it but it turns out that i suck and also i'm a terrible person so yeah it's it's unfortunate but I think part of the reason that happens is kind of the moral line that's drawn in the film because it's very clear, um, like big picture that Martha gets what she wants and, you know, seems to deserve because she's pure of heart. And Harlan, um, as, as dramatic as he is, does want what's best for his family and sees that money is just tearing them apart. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why his games and plans tend to work out. Whereas everyone who is acting selfishly and trying to undercut and even kill other people are consistently thwarted by seemingly fate. But I think it's just kind of the moral alignment of the universe, if anything. Yeah. It's karma. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those dogs <laughs> definitely bring back multiple pieces of uh, evidence or things. So like, I mean, there's the piece of the trellis, you know, that like yeah. they come <laughs> trotting up with. I mean, they're, they're the true boys. heroes. <laughs> we're here to help we can we can detect um i if you guys have other questions or specific things to talk about i'd love to but i would like to kind of bring it back to you know how good of an homage this this film is to the genre um by talking about the fact that there's a lot that feels very stereotypical in the film uh, the opening shot is this dark old mansion with spooky fog and dogs and a servant bringing up, you know, food to her master. And, you know, it's, it just feels very classic whodunit up until the end of that intro scene. And then it starts to kind of twist. But there's there's still lots of things that are stereotypical from the interviews with all the potential suspects and the fact that they all have their own motives and different accounts. And there's all these interesting details um, the Sherlock Holmes-esque Detective Blanc, um, the, lots of references to like, you know, murder she wrote and other things. But there's also a lot of really weird stuff in here, like Martha's <laughs> truth vomit and uh, Detective Blanc has like some interesting idiosyncrasies, like tapping on the piano, his f- seemingly fake Southern accent, um, things like that. So, yeah, how did you guys feel about the things that didn't quite fit into the genre here and, you know, how they serve the story and if they maybe help kind of reimagine the whodunit or if they're just kind of weird and out there? 
Man, the only thing I think of when you you bring that up is just Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc's thing about the donut with a hole in the do- and there's another donut and I'm like, <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> like I was he says dying it with, during that. <laughs> like he says it so like I don't know he he's I mean he is very much behind what he's saying. There is no like hesitation there, and I'm like I believe you. I believe you feel like you're onto something and I can follow that, but man, like I, and I, yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of a question of, is this more of a parody in that respect or is it just an idiosyncrasy of the character? Right. What do you think? Uh, You know, (laughs) (laughs) I will put Uh, you on the spot if you ask We'll wait for Knives Out too, right? Um, I, uh, you know, I would say that there are people that talk like that. I'm, I'm not, I'm going to say that that is, that is, uh, that is just an idiosyncrasy of the character. I think that, because I think if you get into parody, you get, I mean, there's a lot of reference. There's a lot of, uh, tie-ins to other, you know, uh, other mysteries. So like you mentioned Murder, She Wrote, they're watching an episode of that in the, in the movie at one point, uh, Marta's family is, or, I can't remember what the what the video was at the very beginning that I think her sister was listening to. But I don't the, think they the, say, but it's like some CSI show, basically. Yeah, and so there's that, and they name drop like a Hallmark Channel movie that doesn't really exist, but it was created for that point, and it had like a real actress that they they name dropped as well. And so it's like it's it's not really into the point of like being so self aware that it's a parody, but I I think it's much more of just it's the we're going to take this idea, we're going to kind of reinvent it a little bit, and this is just an idiosyncrasy of this character that we thought worked really well as being sort of the, on the outside, everybody doesn't take him seriously because they think it's an act, or they he just does it to throw them off. And uh, because there's been, I feel like there's been other characters that I could be wrong, but it, that seems like something that you would do, kind of like the family is putting up their own front about what they want to appear like. I feel like he's doing the same thing to sort of throw them off so that he doesn't realize all the clues that he's picking up along the way. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Chris, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, uh, number one, I, I think it's a, it's a great homage. Like, I think this movie works um, very well, like on a surface level, even though it does pull the rug out and has some <laughs> departures. I think those things keep it fresh. And I think it makes it more fun uh, because you sort of subvert uh, the audience along the way, like at key points and like the familiar, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, sort of like timeline or structure, right? At like at the key points in the structure of like a whodunit or murder mystery. Like that's where like those moments come where uh, your your expectations are subverted. So um, I, I love the idiosyncrasies of the, uh, I, I totally butchered that. Uh, but yeah, I, I love like how, like, just like the weird um, bits of this that uh, do stand out and, and seem odd. I think like for me, it like enhanced the viewing experience and, and made me really love this film um, even more. I think like it had you done this as a straightforward, like who done it with that cast, like it was, would have still been a great movie. It would have been a lot of fun, but I think when they make the, the choices to, uh, subvert your expectations it it makes it almost timeless in a way um mm-hmm. and sets sort of a new bar of like what a modern whodunit like can be i think like yeah. in a lot of ways it's it's paying homage but it's also laying the groundwork of like 
how how this genre can evolve a bit. Yeah, it definitely made it more enjoyable for the like little things and just like the fact that there is still physical comedy and what like should be like a very elevated movie, right? Or genre <laughs> generally. Like when I was freaking out because Martha like vomits in her car right before Detective Blanc gets in and she has to drive with him after she's been caught. How does he not smell the vomit in her car? Mm. Yeah. It was like a little dainty like hurl, you know, like it was just one but- little. Yeah. <laughs> I Maybe lost she had an it empty there stomach. Maybe and a few she had other places. Stomach. I thought he was um, gonna take a sip of that the first time I saw it. I was like, I was like yeah. oh no. It's no. like this is, she's gonna get found out because he's gonna go for a like a little swig, but thankfully that didn't happen. It could have. I wonder if there's a blooper. <laughs> I do have a theory about the truth vomit. This mm-hmm. might be out there. But I think there's a lot going on with who is able to kind of fabricate a story and a narrative mm-hmm. about themselves and who's like controlling the narrative. And it's very much um the the family and like they even go to the extent of like alerting the news to what's happened with their inheritance and so that you know martha and her family will get harassed and things like that they're very much in control of the narrative and they're very interested in telling a very particular story about themselves and martha doesn't have that option she can try to tell a limited version of the truth but she has no control over her narrative she just has to act in a way that is true to herself and i think that's Mm -hmm. kind of like as ridiculous as it is, the the function the truth vomit serves is a kind of symbol of her lack of control over the narrative and why she has to kind of act the way she does. It's also uh, a very physical, uh, tactile bit of catharsis at the end when she truth vomits all over Ransom's face, too, <laughs> right? Like, it's, yes. it's a great way to tie all that together. It's like he's literally being covered in in the truth you know so to speak like um at the end great way to go out yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh so you you told me off uh, off mic off camera that you had some thoughts on leblanc's uh uh blanc sorry benoit blanc yeah but just blanc uh his accent (laughs) in the film will touched on it already um so like my sort of uh, after kind of considering it for a bit my my sort of take was like i think like behind the scenes it just maybe daniel craig thought it'd be fun to do a southern accent but i think i agree with will and that's where i landed it was like it's a disarming technique um that he's using to sort of um i don't know have people underestimate him a bit what where did you come down i imagine you had thoughts since you asked me last night well, since I was tasked with the research for this, I just looked up quotes from the author and from uh, Craig himself. And uh, apparently when he was like first handed the script for auditions, it, it said like slight Southern accent at the top of the script. <laughs> um, and he says, and I quote, I went for it. Johnson wanted something that placed him, the character Detective Blanc, that separated him from the rest of the characters and also kind of maybe leaves him open for ridicule. So it definitely is <laughs> supposed to be disarming, place him kind of in a different like location physically from New England. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think also just taken to an extreme because Detective Blanc is an extreme person. <laughs> an extreme personality, I should say. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so 
I'm not sure how much more you have, but before we transition from this, I did want to ask you, like, what would you want out of a sequel? Um, since there are two being made for Netflix and one that's like, well, on the way, like, is there anything you want and anything you don't want? Um, and I can start, I can tell you, I don't want more of like this family or story. Like, I think we leave that in the rear view and like, consider that a done deal. So that's one thing I don't want. Um, as far as like something I do want, like, I want them to, to continue to play with like the mystery, like, you know, who done it, like suspend, like all those like kind of genres and subgenres. but I want to have something that's like very different than this. Like, I don't want a mansion, like, I would love if they did like a Orient Express kind of thing, like like on a train would be excellent or um, cruise ship or something like that um, would be a lot of fun. I'd, you know, as a Poe fan, I would love to see like a Murders in the Room org style, like kind of homage, like that would just tickle me right to my core. Um, but how about y'all? I would love to see something in kind of, and, and then there are none style where it is a truly crazy premise, not not even recognizable as being taken from and then there and on, but just like a really weird group of characters getting summoned to do this very strange thing and like all this confusion and for them to kind of like follow some twists and turns similar to Knives Out with that premise, I think would be very interesting. Excellent. I, I will contradict you slightly, Chris, and say I don't want to see any more of the family, but it would be kind of cute since like Detective Blanc kept calling Martha like his Watson if like she did become huh. some kind of an assistant to him. I think that would be adorable for frankly. Fair. Yeah. I mean, um I I think that's like I could live with that. Um as long as we're not like focusing on the Thromby family again. Like what I don't want is like and oh like ransom thromby's been killed in prison like which one of the like you, <laughs> you know something like that like along those lines. Like I just don't want. Um but yes. I think that I would like to see, let's see, I had a thought and then it escaped me, but I feel like if it's something where I'd be interested to see if they keep the same sort of format where you sort, you are led to believe that the crime has been committed and you know who it is and whether or not that's true by the end of it, you still come to find out through the course of the events, um, whether it really is them or not. And you watch sort of the detective work behind it. I would be interested to see if they want to make it more from the, I guess, the accused uh, characters or implicated characters point of view like they did with this one, or if they're going to kind of switch it over and do more of the traditional style where you see like the detective doing the majority of it and to have uh, Benoit Blanc be more in the, I guess, in the main focus of it. I actually like it better when he wasn't, but that to me, I think if they did it that way where it's more from the you know, the supposed perpetrator's view, I, I would be interested to see that. And to see if there's any other variations that Johnson wants to come up with that sort of aren't necessarily wash, rinse, and repeat like the last one, but kind of keep it fresh and follow maybe the basic structure of it that way. Um, as for stuff that I don't really want to see, I, I like how the first one did a good job of talking about an aspect of our culture that we are pretty uncomfortable with it when we sit and think about it. And I would like that to continue to be a factor in, in subsequent films. I think it's good that it was done in a way that wasn't just ham fisted. It wasn't just like, this is, you know, like, we're just going to tell you verbatim straight to your face. You can just, you see it, you see it in the actions of the characters and what it makes them do. And I think that I would like to see more of that nuanced uh, portrayal of some of the uglier sides of humanity, just, 
without having to tell us point blank, like, this is what we're, we're trying to tell you and just show you. And so I appreciated that about the first one. I, I hope they do that in the second and that they don't make it too over the top. Point blank or point blank? no i agree with you totally well uh that did feel like the kind of the heart of this film was its willingness to interact with uncomfortable topics in a genre that has generally like tried to be as safe as possible with what it engages with murder's fine but like you start getting political. Hey, that's too. That's a little. That's too ugly. Start triggering. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Go back to talking about donuts. It's safe. <laughs> I do want another donut analogy or some sort of food analogy from Benoit Blanc. There we go. That's mm. my little addendum. Beignets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Beignet Blanc. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was from Alabama, right? He's not Louisiana, so I don't know. Maybe that's a little too far off, but yeah. Amazing. Well, May, did you have anything else that you wanted to share on Knives Out? That's a great note to wrap it up on. Fantastic. (laughs) Cool. Well, let's let's play a quick game before we end the episode and draw our card for next week, which we've established will not be a May card. Uh, So I thought it would be fun to take a random actor generator from bestrandoms.com slash random actor generator and play uh six degrees of separation or six degrees of kevin bacon as some people uh refer to it affectionately uh so for those of you that don't know how to play what we're going to do is take two actors and we will attempt to link them uh within six films so for example if you were to link kevin bacon since he is uh used uh frequently you could pick an actor like, oh, I don't know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you could say, okay, Kevin Bacon was in Footloose with Chris Penn, who was in So and So, and you you would try to within six films like get there. I'm not going to attempt to do that now, but um, <laughs> hopefully you get the idea. I do have our first two actors, and um, I might abstain from this one because I could do this in basically like one one go like not that they were in a movie together necessarily but um your first actor is Stellan Skarsgård uh if you know uh who he is so um I'm trying to think uh he was in um Girl with the Dragon Tattoo he appeared in several Marvel movies um including uh Thor I think was his premiere he was like one of the uh the, the doctor the, the professor the older professor that Thor uh meets and uh, our second actor is Bill Murray, who hopefully needs no introduction. So I can actually do this in one, but I'm gonna I'll, I'll give you guys a crack at it, and then I can can interject. Or if you just want me to impress the world with my <laughs> instantaneous answer here, I'm having trouble you. visualizing who Stellan Skarsgård looks like. I, I will allow you to Google. Just don't look at his like you know Scouts Honor. Don't look at the filmography. Like uh, um, okay, <laughs> okay, okay. I'll it. give you a whopping hint here. The mm-hmm. the Marvel films are going to be a great source for like a, like actors because there's like uh, everybody and their mother, brothers, sisters, cousins are are in those. So like that's a great place for any, if they, they've been in a Marvel movie. Like you could was Bill see. Murray ever in a Marvel movie? Uh, I don't believe so yet. <laughs> um, I, I will, will he be at as some of point? this era? I'm, sure. <laughs> I'm sure, but no. <laughs> But so I'm so to clarify, I don't I don't know like a movie that these two were in together, but I okay. can I know a shared uh, 
actor or actress that like would connect them like instantly can i take a guess because i feel like there's a no yeah throw it out yeah yeah throw it out absolutely Uh, i don't think it's right because i don't know if i've seen the connecting film but i feel like all right so he was in with chris hemsworth for thor Mm -hmm. so i'm sorry stellan and chris hemsworth Mm -hmm. and chris hemsworth was in the uh the ghostbusters movie that had melissa mccarthy in it but i'm trying to think was did bill murray have a cameo in that or did he not i've not seen it so i could not tell you Um, see that was where i was wondering if that might have been like the connection for the short thing but that's if if not then no Hey everybody, Chris here. I am doing the edit right now for this episode and I have to apologize to my co-host Will. He is obviously correct at this point. Why I didn't Google this or look on IMDb, I'm not really sure, but uh, all the credit to Will. He got this correct uh, right here and now in the video. So Will, I'm sorry. I should trust my co-host a little bit more or uh, pause to verify in the future. Good job, man. So I'll give you another hint. Think about who your Avengers are. And <laughs> Castellan Skarsgård was in the Avengers. Think about your Avengers. And there's one really obvious uh, person that was a co-star of Bill Murray. I don't think this is what you're getting at, Chris. But I'm thinking about like uh, Willem Dafoe and Bill Murray. It's not, and not then... that. What? What's the what's the connection? It's not not that, but uh, I'll be curious to hear your uh, your take. Isn't Willem Dafoe also in a Spider Man film? He was. Yep, he's in. And a isn't couple... Spider Man also in Avengers? Um, different. <laughs> well, uh, not the same. Not the same. Not the same Spider Man. So the the answer that I'm thinking of is uh, ScarJo, Scarlett Johansson. Uh, was in the Avengers oh. with Stellan Skarsgård and co-starred with Bill Murray yeah, in Lost in Translation, man. which is one of my favorite movies. Like that's really, it gives me the warm and fuzzies. Uh, I love that that movie. Sorry. Well, that that was awesome that we, <laughs> we got that that one. Uh, you know, right? That's that's great. Um, <laughs> let's go ahead and draw our next card. So. Shuffle, 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 shuffle. No May, no May, no May. We love May, but no more May for now. <laughs> Give her a break. Your eye on the ball. a break. All right. Keep your eye on it. And this is a versus mode. Oh, yeah. That is going to be a Chris selection. We are going to compare and contrast two films and declare a definitive winner. So the two films that we will be comparing and uh, contrasting is All About Eve versus Mean Girls. So (laughs) it it is the battle of the caddy women. I love it. This is going to be amazing. Could not have two different films. So we'll be watching both of those uh, between the next episode and talking about uh, which one is the definitive winner. Based on be like, a fun one. zero criteria, but uh, <laughs> whatever criteria you want, that's that's how I it's think we should work. each have our own personal criteria. Agree, agree. So, you, <laughs> and you can we'll, we'll explain to the audience uh, what our criteria was and why we declared uh, the winner. But uh, I love both of these movies, so this is fantastic. And that does it for this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed watching along and hearing us chat. Please engage with us on social media. Let us know what you thought of Knives Out. If it was your first time, second, or third, we'd love to hear what you thought of the movie. And until next time, bye.
Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys.